While you're opening up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8, that's our series, um, you might be interested to note that those who care about things like this and are good at it actually try to time how long greeting lasts. First service, 37.3 seconds. You guys are far eclipsing their pace. If you come to first service, it will be remarkable, the difference. It's like I'm encouraging amphetamine use, you know, coffee, legal substances. Actually, better than that, wake up and get some time in the Word of God in prayer. That's about as much spiritual juice as you're going to need. So Nehemiah chapter 8 is our text this morning. This is going to be a little unusual uh, by way of sermons. Um, because while we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm really going to take you on a journey through Judaism as it began to develop and change and adapt a particular holy day from the Old Testament. Let's read about that holy day. But let me ask you a few questions. And this is rhetorical, meaning you don't really need to respond. It's just for you to think um, through the answers. So here's the questions. On what day did God create the world? What day did he create Adam? What day did Adam sin and then receive forgiveness from God? What day will the righteous dead be resurrected and hear the sound of the shofar, raising them back to life, giving eternal life? What day did Abraham, according to um, the Bible, what day did Abraham tie up Isaac, his son, in order to sacrifice him? Now, if you are familiar with Judaism, there is an answer to all those questions, and they believe that day is called Rosh Hashanah. And we're going to return to that holy day of Rosh Hashanah in a few moments but I want to start by looking at our text that lies before us, and we're only going to read the first two verses, particularly the beginning of verse 1 and the end of verse 2. Let's read it. Uh, follow along with me. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. On the first day of the seventh month. Now it's really easy, if you're reading through Nehemiah, to read the first day of the seventh month, and just in our English-speaking, modern Minds say that's sort of irrelevant. I have no idea why that's in there. But listen, let me assure you, let's be students of God's word. If it's in the word of God, it's important. There is no wasted words in God's word. So on the first day of the seventh month is really what this sermon is all about because it is wildly significant. And it's going to begin what, we go, what we're going to see next week, a revival. The likes of which Jerusalem has rarely seen. Now let me give you a deep dive look. So today, here's, here's my goal. This is really, really simple. The goal of this sermon... Oh, you're not supposed to be up there yet, Renee. Because nobody listens to me when they see fun graphics. <laughs> Babies and graphics, I just cannot compete. <laughs> the purpose of this sermon 
is that we would understand how to speak lovingly, graciously, and competently to our Jewish friends. And that God might bring Jewish friends into your life. And that when they begin to celebrate this festival that I'm going to unpack, that you'll be able to speak into them and point them to Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has already come and who will return again for his people. So I want to give you some background information. The chart that you're seeing behind me is the chart of Jewish calendars. And the Jews had two calendars that they went by. There was a sacred or a religious calendar, and there was what was called a civil calendar that was more hooked into the times of the kings. The sacred calendar corresponded to their holy days, and the months always began on a new moon. I'll give you more information on that in a minute. The civil calendar corresponded with the agricultural seasons that began with the early rains. So if you open up to Nehemiah chapter 2, and if you're reading through Nehemiah, and you get to verse 1 of chapter 2, and you read that it was in Nisan that Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild, then you remember that's the month that, that's corresponding to our mid-March, mid-April. And then you get to chapter 6, and when the wall was rebuilt, and it was on the 25th of Elal, which corresponds to our mid-August to mid-September. So here it is, mid-August to mid-September, they completed the wall. And now the text says that it's the seventh month in the first day. That's the month Tishri on the sacred calendar. And then that's our mid-September to mid-October. So now the wall is completed mid-August to mid-September, the 25th of Elal, and now the first day of Tishri, not even a week later. All the people assemble. Now, why is that important? Well, let me tell you what God commanded to occur on the first month of Tishri, or the first day of Tishri. Here it is, Leviticus 23, God is speaking. In the seventh month, that's our month in Nehemiah, on the first day of the month, our day, Nehemiah chapter 8, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So God commands this to be a memorial festival on the first day of the seventh month. And it really wasn't ever given a name by God. It was called Yom Teruah in the Hebrew. Yom means day. Ruah means blowing of a horn or a loud noise. So it became called by, it became called by the name the Feast of the Trumpets. The first day of the seventh month, Tishri, was the day to celebrate the Feast of the Trumpets. And it's not a holiday. It's a holy day. There's a major difference. And it's not as strict as a Sabbath day, but everyday work and regular duties cannot be performed. Listen, this is why all manner of daily life was to recede into the background and all and, and their minds moving forward to the coming day of atonement as well as the feast of the tabernacles. Here's here's some unpacking. You ready? Tishri comes the seventh month. The first day is the feast of tabernacles. Ten days later is the day of atonement. 
Five days after that is the Feast of Tabernacles. All of the fall festivals of the Jews, the high holy days in the fall, occurred in 16 days from the 1st to the 15th of the month Tishri. I want to give you a little more significance to that. You know, where I'm from in Derider, New York, a little farm town in central New York, 600 of us that lived in town, if you add in all the farmers and all the people that lived in the outskirts of the town, maybe 1,800 to 2,000. Every August, Denise and I have been to it with our kids, every August is um, the Derider Field Days. That's the big carnival time, the big time that we all look forward to in August. It's capped off with, to us, an incredible fireworks demonstration. And we all look forward all summer to the field days of Derider. There's all sorts of stuff going on, including one of my favorites, the horseshoe toss. And yes, I'm a redneck, okay? That's the way it is. If you've never played horseshoes, you're either not a man who's ever played horseshoes or a woman who's ever... See, I could get myself out of holes. I have a lot of practice on it. So you've got in, in the Jewish calendar life, you've got the spring calendar, the spring festivals that are concluded, and it's four long months until their next festival. Listen, you know what they're doing in these four months? They've planted their crops, and they're praying for rain. They're hoping the crops grow. Listen, they're an agrarian society. If the locusts come and destroy the crops, they starve. They're praying by faith that God will bring the crops, and then they bring those crops in in the harvest and after the harvest is done the storehouses are full the barns are full then the fall festivals kick off can you imagine the joy and the anticipation they have food for the year God has been good so Nehemiah assembles the people chapter 8 verse 1 and 2 on Tishri 1 the day of the feast of trumpets they say it's a festival to remember God's faithful to them, faithfulness to them, nowhere seen in that day and age as clearly as completing that wall in 52 days despite the enemies. You know, in later times, in the Feast of the Trumpets, while the drink offering of the sacrifice was being poured out, the priests and the Levites chanted Psalm 81, and in the evening sacrifice, they sang Psalm 29. So if you go to Psalm 81 on your own time, you can study. This was a song, a worship song that was written for the Feast of the Tabernacles to help the people of Israel to celebrate. And you've got six of their seven high holy days, six of their seven festivals that occur when the moon is bright in the, in the night sky, not the Feast of the Trumpets. It was the only of the seven to occur at a new moon. That means when the moon is at its most slender crescent, the night sky being the darkest. You see, on the 30th day of the month, watchmen were placed around Jerusalem to watch the night sky. And as soon as each of them detected the new moon, he hurried to the house that, that was set apart in the city to report to the president and the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. It's a new moon. And that, that priest would go outside and confirm and he would say these words, 
it is consecrated. And when he said it is consecrated, they would send the signal to the neighboring Mount of Olives to light the signal fire and signal fires all around the land of Israel would be lit. And it was the signal that today is the day of the new moon. And in the month of Tishri, this is the day of the Feast of Trumpets. See, the Feast of Trumpets, friends, why it started in a new moon when the night sky was at its darkest was to remind Israel of their dark times when their hope had dimmed. It was a day to remember what happened to their ancestors in Egypt, 430 years that they were slaves and God brought his people out, brought them through the wilderness, brought them into their own land to be their God and for them to be his people. It was to start in the darkest of the month and bring the joy back to the people. And so the day centered around the blowing of the trumpets. And Israel had a few different horns and one of them was the silver trumpet. But on this day, what was central, the horn that was central was not the silver trumpet. It was the shofar, which could be made from any animal's horn except that of an ox or a calf. You know why they didn't make it from that? It's because they did not want to remind God of their ancestor's sin of worshiping the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai. So the most common shofar was the ram's Horn, and it was made from a ram's horn to be a reminder to the people of God that God was faithful to Abraham as Abraham uh, was to was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. God was faithful. He provided a ram caught in the thicket to be in place of the of his son Isaac as a substitute. So the rabbis had a saying that went like this: the shofar was created for the welfare of Israel. And it was blown for a number of reasons. It signaled war. It signaled the enemies of God that were, that were coming against Israel. It warned of danger. It was blown at the start of the Jubilee year. That's the year when slaves were released from their debt to their masters. It was blown when a new king came to the throne. But listen, the most common use of the shofar was this. It was blown as a call to worship God. It was blown as a call to bow down in worship to Yahweh. In fact, listen, when Rome occupied Jerusalem and they had the temple services in the morning going, all of a sudden the priests, as was custom, blew the shofar as a signal to worship. The Roman soldiers interpreted it as a, as a call to war. And a massacre of hundreds of Jews began that happened in Jerusalem. The blast of the shofar was a reminder that their God was sovereign. Listen to Psalm 47, 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. That word in Hebrew is shofar. And it wasn't an easy instrument to master. You don't think you could just going to pick up a shofar, James has one, and bring it and start being an expert. Listen, the ones who blew the shofar were trained from little boys to know how to blow it. And he would raise the horn to his lips and often the mouthpiece of the shofar, even to, to today, modern days, 
It was made either of silver or gold. The best shofars were made of gold, the mouthpiece. And he would raise the horn to his lips and he would gather a lung full of air. And then he would send the haunting notes through the temple mount to stir the people to repentance and to worship. And only a shofar in perfect condition could be used. And it was usually, as I said, fitted with a gold mouthpiece. It, would, it, would, it could be carved, but it could not be painted. And it was curved and bent. And the more bent and the more curvature was preferred because it showed the proper attitude of sorrow that one ought to have before the Lord during this period between the Feast of the Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. And three times the shofar would sound, and each time they would be followed by the blast of the priests, by the silver trumpets, including they were intending to echo the mournful call of the ram's horn. Listen, the per, all of that to say this, the purpose of the Feast of Trumpets was to pierce the soul to repentance and move the Israelites to look into their hearts and then upward to their God for mercy. So you get to Nehemiah chapter 8 and you read that Nehemiah assembled all the people on the first day of the seventh month. Listen, there is so much significance. This is the feast of the trumpet. It is to prepare the people to meet their God and to worship him and to repent. And revival is about to come. Now let me ask you a question really quickly. Do we, you and I, do we have regular times where the purpose of these times or days is to look deeply into our heart and see if there is any wicked thing in us. Is there a regular rhythm that we stop all of the distractions of the world and we have a holy day where we prayerfully begin to look in and say, God, is there anything in me, anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? Do you do that? Do you know how much we've lost in modern Christianity that the Jews had? See, these holy days were all purposeful. They were all intentional. And this one was intended to get you to stop regular life, look in and look up. Do you know what profit would come to our spiritual walks if we would get back and recover those regular rhythms? The three blasts from the shofar represent the three major themes of the feast. You've got the first blast. By the way, I'd encourage you to do this. You can get onto YouTube and you can listen to a priest give these three blasts. They are powerful. The first blast is a long, unwavering blast. It emphasizes the theme that God is king over all. He is sovereign. It's a long, unwavering blast. And then the second blast to come. Remember, they're followed by the priests blowing the trumpets, the silver trumpets. The second blast are, it constitutes is three short, broken blasts. And it remembers, it reminds the people of the theme that God's covenant, he has made it for his people. He is faithful to keep it. So the first First blast, God is sovereign. The second blast, God is faithful. And the third blast, the most difficult to learn, is a long nine-part staccato blast. It sounds like sobbing. It's intended 
to sound like sobbing. It reminds the Jews that the wicked will cry, the wicked will tremble in the fear of God on the day of judgment, and it brings the great theme that God has delivered his people from that pain. So you got God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, and God's deliverance. All of them wrapped up in these blasts of the shofar. And in between each one of these blasts, they read ten verses of scripture. They recite them according to the themes. But it's forbidden to read any scripture on God's divine punishment. As the feast was about the mercy of God and his willingness to give mercy to his people. Now, Judaism developed the Feast of the Trumpets and it began to evolve. Judaism is the religion, basically, and summarily, it's the religion of the Jews. It developed, it evolved the Feast of Trumpets into what is now known today as a two-day festival called Rosh Hashanah. And it literally means Rosh Hashanah, it literally means the head of the year. So I want to spend the rest of this sermon helping us understand what is significant about Rosh Hashanah and how can we understand the Jewish mind so that we can bravely, compassionately, graciously speak to our Jewish friends and point them to Jesus Christ. Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year celebration. Now you got to remember, by A.D. 70... Rome, which was in control of Jerusalem, Jerusalem revolted. Rome put down the revolt by killing over a million Jews. Can you remember that? Can you, can you imagine that? Over a million Jews slaughtered A.D. 70. It sent the people of Jerusalem as well as the Christians scattering over the face of the planet in developed nations. So this festival became a two-day festival for a couple reasons. To help the Jewish people survive spiritually. But it was also really difficult. It's very difficult to be precise when the new moon is actually here. And then how to communicate that around the world where all the Jews were. How do you do that? So it became a two-day festival to give a little bit of leeway on the precision of when the new moon was actually beginning. And so Jewish tradition taught that on Rosh Hashanah, listen to this, on Rosh Hashanah, Satan comes before Yahweh and he accuses Israel as the books for judgment are opened. And the ancient rabbis suggest that the, suggested that the blasts of the shofar, they confuse Satan. They confound Satan. They make Satan believe that the Messiah had come and his authority had ended on earth. And so it became customary in the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah to sound up 100 blasts from the shofar to confound Satan. The rabbis began to teach that on the new year, all the inhabitants of the world pass before him like flocks of sheep. They taught that God opens three books on Rosh Hashanah, the new year. One of these books is for the completely righteous. One is for the completely wicked. And one of them is for the average person. And when God sees a completely righteous person, he writes their name in the book of life. When he sees a completely wicked person, he writes their name in the book of death. And when he sees an average person, which is most of humanity, 
he gives them 10 days to repent. That's why you've got what the Jews call even to, to today the 10 days of awe. That's 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And these 10 days are given to them for a time to repent. So the, the shofar blasts on Rosh Hashanah were meant as a call for God's people to repent and avert God's judgment by asking for his mercy. So friends, listen, as we love those who are Jewish in our lives, it's important that you understand the significance of their beliefs, which is why I'm taking an entire sermon to expand on the Feast of Trumpets or its modern holy day Rosh Hashanah. You know, in 2013, Wednesday evening, September 4th, it's always the evening when a holy day begins, the Jewish day, sundown to sundown. It will begin September 4th, Wednesday evening. It will conclude Friday evening, September 6th. That's when it will occur, Rosh Hashanah in 2013. In our New Year celebrations, we do them with excitement and joy, right? January or December 31st, heading into the new year. See, the Jewish new year is a time of solemn self-evaluation first and joy second. And there's a tremendous benefit in having a regular time of reflecting on God's sovereignty, reflecting on his faithfulness, and reflecting on his power and his ability to deliver us. Do you have a sin in your life that you cannot overcome? Maybe it's swearing, maybe it's drinking, maybe it's bitterness and unforgiveness. Talk to somebody just this last week, cannot forgive. Maybe it's pornography, maybe it's a whole host of things, cheating on taxes, stealing time from your employer, and you try, you try and you correct it and you seem powerless. See, there's a tremendous benefit it's taking a regular rhythm and remembering God is utterly sovereign and God is utterly faithful and God is utterly able to deliver us from even those things that seem to have so much power over us. You see, in Rosh Hashanah, the Jews look back at the mistakes they made in the previous year, and then they begin to plan changes they need to make for the new year. And that's what the 10 days of awe were for. During those 10 days, God's reviewing the books of judgment on Tishri 1, Rosh Hashanah. And he hands out final judgment on Tishri 10, Yom Kippur. And listen, here's the fear of the Jew. God will determine on that day, Tishri 10, Yom Kippur, if you're going to live or die in the coming year. Therefore, the Jewish New Year of Rosh Hashanah, it's a time of reflection. It's intended to powerfully move them to repentance. That's why even till even to today, you will hear a Jew say to a Jew during the 10 days of awe, may you be inscribed in the book of life for a good year. That's what they say. That's their blessing. All we ask you to do is say good morning. That was a sharp jab in love, maybe. So important is Rosh Hashanah that, listen, they begin preparing for this a month in advance. In fact, the week before 
the holy day begins, pious Jews, they get up early to pray heart-wrenching prayers of repentance. They recite scripture. They attend public baths for ritual cleansing because Judaism teaches that man was created with both good motives and evil motives. Now listen, you ought to be able to hear the gospel's correction in this. Who is good? No one is good, Romans says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no thing that any of us does that meets the holy, perfect standards of God. None. So this Rosh Hashanah is intended as a time of reflection, intended to powerfully move them to repentance. And even a righteous, perfectly righteous person with one sin at the end of his life, can destroy all of his former deeds, according to Judaism. And a rabbi will take you. Listen, if you don't agree with that, and you talk to your Jewish friend, you say, no, I don't agree with that. Here's what the gospel says. They're going to likely take you to Ezekiel 33:12, where it says, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. Well, listen, what that means is that no one is righteous before God. Even the very good things that we are doing, Romans says, they're like filthy rags to God, fit to be thrown out and burned. Therefore, somebody who is righteous had to die on the behalf of us who cannot be righteous. And his name is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And the rabbis insist that a person must sincerely repent by the day of atonement so that the scale of God's judgment can be tipped in favor of good. This is why Rosh Hashanah is so important to them. It reminds the people of their righteous sovereign God who will be faithful to forgive if they repent and the blasts of the shofar usher in a time of sorrow and reflection. But there's a joyful side to Rosh Hashanah as well. In fact, listen, moms, often the mothers don't even go to the synagogue services on that day. They stay home because they're getting the feast ready. And they're laying the table with the very best dinnerware, china if they have it, crystal if they have it. The very best is to be pulled out for the festival of Rosh Hashanah. And as the synagogue service ends, the worshipers leave the synagogue in a joyful mood, confident that God has compassionately heard their sincere prayers and the call of the shofar. That's why they wear white in Rosh Hashanah. They won't wear black. They eat and they drink and they rejoice in the conviction that God will perform miracles for them. Go back to Nehemiah 8, look at verse 10 with me, and you'll see what they base this on, the celebration on, where it's said to them, Nehemiah 8, verse 10, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the dinner is set, the table is set with the very finest of dinnerware and all things bitter are avoided because bitter food is considered an omen of bitter times to come. Nothing is eaten that bears a reminder to God of their sin. So they take apples 
which are symbolic of God's glorious presence. And they dip those apples or bread in some cases in honey, which is a symbol for their wishes for a sweet new year. And they make special bread, a round loaf of egg bread that is baked in the shape of a crown, reminding them of the kingly theme and the desire for a long span of life. And sometimes the bread is baked in the shape of ladders to remind the people of when God met Jacob. Jacob and the Jacob's ladder in the vision in the dream. And they'll participate, they'll leave their meal and they'll participate by, by putting pieces of bread into their pockets. And they'll go to preferably flowing water, a creek or a stream, sometimes the ocean. If they have a fountain, they will, you'll see Jewish congregants on Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah ca- gathered around a fountain. And they'll take these pieces of bread and they have uh, what I'm interpreting is called the casting off. It's what it is. It's a casting off ceremony. They'll take the bread and they'll shake. They'll take their pockets inside out and they'll shake the bread onto the flowing water. If fish can be there, that's preferable because the fish are also symbolic in this ritual. And what they're doing is they're saying we're shaking our sins to our God and he will bury them into the very depths of the ocean. It's the casting off ceremony, the tashlik. It's what it's called in Hebrew. And sometimes they hold pieces of paper that have been inscribed or written on them, the sins that they're letting go of, the sins that they've committed in this past year. They're letting go of them. They're repenting and casting them to God. And letting God flow them away with that moving water. See, what developed from the Feast of Trumpets to the modern day Rosh Hashanah is beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? Talked to somebody in between the services and they said that the things that the Jews do, it has such beautiful, powerful imagery. And we lose that in the church. We've let go of too much of this. But it's only beautiful and it's only powerful when it connects to the power of the gospel. All of these festivals had a future forward marker, an arrow pointing to Jesus. In fact, according to Marvin Rosenthal, one of the Jewish Christian experts, he wrote that all of the festivals of Israel, they begin at Calvary where Jesus voluntarily gave himself for the sins of the world, that's Passover, and they climax at the establishment of the Messianic kingdom at this Messiah's second coming. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to look deeply at it in a few weeks. And he writes, these seven feasts, they depict the entire redemptive career of the Messiah. All of these festivals were to point to Jesus Christ, the Messiah sent from God. And friends, the Jews, by and large, have missed it. They're waiting for their Messiah, but the Messiah has come. And they believe that that great horn will be blown when the Messiah comes for his people. And we believe that Jesus already came. And when he comes back, Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet, that word is shofar of God. It's why Jewish gravestones are so commonly decorated with the image of a shofar. If you go to visit a Jewish gravestone, Good chance you're going to see the shofar on it. 
They believe that when the Messiah comes and he resurrects the people from the dead, it will be on Rosh Hashanah and it will be from the blast of the shofar. And the response for us, as well as our Jewish friends, is this. Now listen very carefully, I'm almost done. Today is the day to repent. So let me ask you a question, if I could be so bold. Have you ever, I mean, listen, you're the only one that can answer this. Because I can't see in your heart. And nobody else can see in your heart but God. So have you come to the place of repentance? What I am not meaning is this. Have you been convicted of a sin and confessed that to the Lord and thrown it upon his mercy? I'm not asking for that. Have you come to the place where you've realized that you are still in the dark days of bondage to the Egypt of sin? That, that sin has a shackle over you and you are under the wrath of God. You are under the penalty of sin. You have no atonement. You have no mediator. You have no one covering that sin for you. No one taking that sin away. You have no way to have peace and fellowship with God. Have you come to that point and cried out to Jesus, not to a prophet, not to a religion, not to a system of works, not to a church attendance, not to being a nicer person. You've cried out in the slavery to sin, the darkness of Egypt. You've cried out to God for deliverance in the, through the person of Jesus Christ. See, that's the feast of the trumpets. It was to bring you back the small crescent of the moon. It is dark indeed to be separate from God and under the penalty of sin. But he's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. You don't need to fix your problem. God sent his son to do it. This is why Psalm 2 says, kiss the son. How odd is that? Yet it has such spiritual meaning. Kiss the son, lest he be angry because you're still in your own sins. Kiss the son and and for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When you cry out to God and you take refuge in his son and what Jesus did on the cross through his death and his burial and his resurrection, you put your faith in him. He will bring your darkness to light and he will save you for eternity. The sound of his shofar will be sweet to your ear, not terrifying, and your name will be forever inscribed into the Lamb's book of life. That's the message to us. That's the message to our Jewish friends. Rosh, Rosh Hashanah is the Jew's heart crying out for the Messiah. The Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. Now you can bring the gospel to your Jewish friends and love them graciously and confidently in the intended meaning of the Feast of Trumpets, which is where Rosh Hashanah has come from. Nehemiah assembled the people. Nehemiah ate on the Feast of the Trumpets day next week. Lord willing, we're going to see the incredible revival that broke out. This is significant beyond what we know. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for... Your word that is so full of meaning.
Father, thank you for Nehemiah, which is teaching us to be the people of God. Thank you for those of our friends who are Jewish. Father, may we be courageous and gracious and confident that we have the answer to what they are searching for in Rosh Hashanah. Lord, may we give them that answer in the form of the gospel. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Lord, give us the words to say to our Jewish friends. We love you and we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.